Welcome to the Nerd of the Rings podcast. To get the latest Middle-Earth-related videos, including Tolkien Explained, Complete Travels, and Theories, visit youtube.com slash nerdofthering's. This audio podcast is made possible by the support of my wonderful Patreon supporters. To learn how you can score some exclusive perks while supporting the channel, visit patreon.com slash nerdofthering's. Welcome everyone to Nerd of the Rings. Today we have a very special guest with us, Carl Hostetter of the Elvish Linguistic Fellowship, and more recently, the editor of the newly published J.R.R. Tolkien's The Nature of Middle-Earth, which just came out today. Carl, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. So uh, let's dive right into it. So how were you first introduced to uh, Tolkien in the world of Middle-Earth? Well, I can give you the long story or the not so long story. You, which, whichever you prefer. We don't mind long stories here. Okay. Well, it, it's kind of neat, so I'll, I'll give you the details. Um, it all started kind of in 1976 when I was in middle school. I had a, a well, well, actually, we weren't friends at first. We were kind of antagonistic to each other for mm. some reason that I had no recollection of whatsoever. Um, uh, however, we also both volunteered in the school library and that's relevant because when I, I was 11 at the time, uh, over the Christmas break, we were assigned to read a Newbery award medal winning book. And it just so happens that right on the top of the return stack was a book with that familiar medal on the cover. And it was, uh, Susan Cooper's the dark is rising. Mm. Um, which by the way, I have ever since then been a huge fan of, her, of that series. It's a book and a series. Um, and it was the perfect time for me to read it. Uh, the protagonist is 11 years old, takes place at Christmas time, and he discovers that he is, although an 11 year old boy, also essentially uh, an immortal. Um, he can, uh, one of the old ones, they're called, and they're, they're at war with the dark. And uh, so he can do things like stop time and travel through time. Um, <laughs> just uh, and, and a lot of it is based, uh, it incorporates a lot of British mythology and, of course, the Arthurian legends. I just absolutely loved it. So I don't know how the topic came up with this friend of mine. His name's Tom. Um, but he also was a huge fan of this book in the series. And so we became best friends at that point. Um, so two years later, my family had to move to Richmond, Virginia, and uh, Tom, as a going away present, gave me my first set of The Hobbit and Lord of the Rings. Mm. Now, I had never heard of Tolkien before that point or read anything he'd written. Um, so, but I, um, when I got settled in in Richmond, I devoured it several times, <laughs> loved it, um, and uh, also, uh, in addition to loving it just as a story and as a work of fantasy, I became very interested in Tolkien's invented languages. You know, mm -hmm. I see those runes and Tengwar on the title page. And I was like, what does that say? What does that say? <laughs> um, and, you know, the bits of uh, Elvish and other languages that you encounter in the text. And I just, you know, I, I had to figure this out. Yeah. Um, so now keep in mind, this was 1978 when I was reading this for the first time. This was long before the internet. Um, <laughs> there was very little way to find, you know, like-minded individuals. I knew one or two people at, at school who were interested um, in Tolkien. Yeah. I only knew one other person who was interested in the languages. Um, 
but I kept at it. Um, I kept reading everything that came out um, through college. Uh, the key moment, though, was when I discovered I came across this book called The Tolkien Scrapbook. Hmm. And in the back of that book, it's a great book, actually. I think it has actually the I think is the best single piece of fan fiction ever written of Tolkien's. Um, but the, the back of the book had a list of Tolkien societies from around the world. And I'm like, hmm. there are Tolkien societies. So uh, I wrote to the Tolkien Society of, of Britain and um, became a subscriber to their uh, bulletin, I'm on Hen, which is still being published. Mm, yeah. And through that, I learned about an honest to goodness group of people who were studying Tolkien's languages and writing about them in a, in a small bulletin sized journal called Quetar. Mm-hmm. I immediately, of course, wrote off and subscribed to that. <laughs> and then um, after, after getting a few issues of it, I discovered there uh, that an American counterpart had formed um, in 1988, I want to say, hmm. um, and it was called Binyar Tenguar. So I immediately wrote to the then editor and the founder, um, Jorge Quinones, and um, subscribed. And I then also offered my services to help with the production of VT. Because by that time I had graduated from college, I had a, a Macintosh computer, I had a, a newfangled thing called a laser printer, <laughs> and, and I also um, had the wherewithal to buy a copy of Aldous PageMaker, mm. so that I could do the page layout for Vinyard Tanglar. Yeah. Before that point, it was a literal cut and paste assembly. Oh wow! Jorge would print out articles on his dot matrix printer and then cut them into columns and paste them on the, the bulletin size pages so that he could then photocopy them and do the folding and stapling and mail it off. Wow. So I eliminated all that manual work. Wow. Um, Made yourself indispensable right off the yeah, bat. <laughs> I did. And, you know, um, so sometime after I started doing that, Jorge just asked me, well, would you like to become the editor take it over? So I did. Um, and that's how I got to know um, some key people, including Christopher Gilson, who is a counterpart editor of a larger journal called Parma et Lombron. Um Arden Smith, who is recognized as, I, I think, hands down the world's ex- leading expert on Tolkien's writing systems. And uh, Patrick Wynn, who, in addition to being a fantastic artist, was also extremely knowledgeable about Tolkien's languages and linguistics in general. And um, we became great friends, Pat and I, and we actually started collaborating together. Um, Sometime after that, uh, now, I had started having a correspondence with Christopher Tolkien, as did Mm. Christopher Gilson, because in our respective jobs as editor, we would have to get permission, you know, to publish certain yeah. Um, when we first started out, uh, you know, we worked, we wrote to the estate and or the publisher and asked for permission. But not too long after I took over as editor, Christopher just sent me a letter with his address and said, you know, just, just write to me. Um, <laughs> so I think it was either 1990, I think it's maybe around 1990. Um, Christopher Tolkien approached Christopher Gilson with the idea of editing and publishing the complete gnomish lexicon 
mm. in Parma. Now, parts of it had been published in uh, the Book of Lost Tales 1 and 2. Mm -hmm. But he, Christopher wanted to see if the whole thing could be uh, published in a proper form. Mm. Chris Gilson had invited the rest of us to help him with the task. And so we started working on it and we would send uh, Chris Gilson would send Christopher Tolkien samples as we progressed through the work. And he apparently liked it a lot. And therefore, during the 1992 Tolkien Centenary Conference, he asked to meet with us. Um, and during that meeting, I remember it very well. We had a very nice walk in the Oxford Botanical Gardens and very nice talk. Wasn't all business. Um, <laughs> But he asked if we would like to consider taking on the task of editing and publishing all of his father's linguistic papers. Wow. And we've been working on that ever since. Um, so up until this point, that is what I was primarily known as an wow. editor of Tolkien's linguistic papers, the editor and publisher of the Tanguar, and an author of uh, articles on the subject in those journals and other mm -hmm. journals. Yeah, you mentioned in your book that you've basically been working on this material for 25 years. Am I correct on that? This is correct. Yeah. Um, so what? So, oh, go ahead. I was so going to say. Yeah, go ahead. I can say how that came about if you like. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I, I'm very curious. You know, I, I'm dying to know like what it was like working with Christopher Tolkien as well. Oh, I was just you know wonderful. Uh, I, I miss him a lot, frankly. Mm. Uh, He's a great guy, T tremendous correspondent, very keen wit, uh, sometimes bitingly so. Uh, <laughs> uh, but uh, yeah, so as part of that larger linguistic project, at some point, Christopher sent us a bundle of photocopies that he had collected together, uh, well, the originals of which he had collected together, uh, in a bundle that he referred to as late philological essays. Mm. Now, what that was, was a collection of Tolkien's later writings in which, while working on some point of the languages, he would take uh, sometimes quite long digressions into other topics that were suggested to him by the linguistic matters that he was working on. When I received the bundle, I, you know, I sat down as I always do and sort of page through just to see what was in my hands. And um, I noticed um, fairly quickly one essay in particular that really intrigued me. And it was called um, Osanwe Kenta, which in Quenya means uh, inquiry into the communication of thought. Mm -hmm. Basically, it's an essay on not just elvish telepathy, but telepathy amongst all uh, minds, mm. um, including all incarnates. Um, and he, Tolkien says this is an ability that we all have, although the elves are much better at it. And of mm -hmm. course, the Balar and Maiar are you know, supreme at it, but even yeah. men could do this. Mm. He then goes into a discussion of when or whether it is lawful or possible to um, force your mind into another mind. He decided that it was actually not possible, that the person whose mind you wish to enter had to make it open to you. Mm. Otherwise, there is no way physically possible to enter uh, somebody else's mind, even by, um, you know, force. Hmm. Um, but then he goes into the fact that Melkor, knowing this, would use fear to try to cower people um, into opening their minds to him. Hmm. 
so, and then that leads into a discussion of motives, both of Melkor and the Valar. And it ends, I'm not going to give it away, but it ends in a, a paragraph and a final sentence that I think is one of the most powerful things that Tolkien ever wrote. That's a good teaser for, uh, for people to pick up the book for sure. Yeah. One of the best lines Tolkien ever wrote. You can't get, yeah. can't get, uh, much better than that. <laughs> so as soon as I read this, it's like, I've got to publish this right away. Mm. And, uh, so I did publish it in Vinyar Tanguar and that was 25 years, almost 25 years ago. So in a, that is, uh, that essay is included in this book. And, um, so in a sense, I started working on this book. Of course, I had no idea that I was, um, starting a book yeah. um, about 25 years ago. Wow. So, so, uh, so take us through that, uh, that 25 year period. Um, what, what was kind of your process? Like, how did this, uh, play out? I know you, you talk a, a little bit about it in the foreword of how, you know, you, you had, uh, this material that, um, you know, you felt, uh, warranted a, a book release and, in the last year of Christopher's life, he um, gave you the go ahead, gave you his blessing to to proceed with this book. Um, so what what was that process like for you? OK, um, so there were a few other pieces in that same bundle of, of papers, the late philological essays um, of a similar nature, philosophical, not strictly linguistic. Mm -hmm. um, but, but very interesting, um, revealing Tolkien's thought on his creations. So I published a, a few more of those in Vinyar Tanguar over some time. Um, and I was also, uh, so Christopher knew of my interest in this type of material, mm -hmm. apart from its uh, linguistic nature. And so sometime after that, um, a French scholar named uh, Michael DeVoe had written to Christopher and asked about his uh, his father's writings on elvish reincarnation, mm. which he refers to in Morgoth's reign. Mm -hmm. um, and Christopher uh, made photocopies of the material, most of it, and sent it to him for um, editing and publishing in uh, a French journal. Mm -hmm. um, he, Christopher at some point asked me to help uh, DeVoe edit this material. Um, because I got pretty good at it by that time. <laughs> uh, I, you know, I had a pretty good understanding of how to, how to treat this yeah. material and present it. So I did do that and it was published eventually in, uh, in this French, French journal whose name I will not attempt to pronounce because French is really not one of my languages. <laughs> uh, so there were things like that. And, you know, th this thing, this uh, reincarnation essay, the things I'd published in VT, but then also there were late writings that were published in particularly Parma El Delamero in 17, which is Tolkien's own extensive index and glossary and discussion of the invented language element in the Lord mm -hmm. of the Rings. Mm -hmm. And in the course of, of some of these, some of these entries, he would again go off on some fairly long digressions about various matters like the nature of spirits. Mm -hmm. How do they make their presence known? How do they, how can they affect the, the physical world, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. Um, and so I knew of all of this interesting material that was only published in the specialist journals. Mm -hmm. Now I, I, even before the, this 
uh, the book project started in earnest, I felt deserved a much wider audience. Yeah. So what happened next was um, after Christopher had finished what, doing what he wanted to do with the history of Middle Earth, he was left over with this one rather large bundle of papers that uh, he collected together and titled the Time and Aging File. Mm -hmm. Now, as the name rightly implies, a lot of this material is concerned with talking, working out um, time periods um, and uh, the gener generations of the elves, um, what their population was at various points in time mm -hmm. along the journey uh, and before they started the journey, um, et cetera, et cetera, which can sound pretty dry. But yeah, I, I will say when I was when I was reading the book, I my wife saw over my shoulder and thought that I was like reading a math book for a second yes. there because there's well, some. You, but you, but I thoroughly awesome. enjoyed it because it's yeah. showing how, you know, how the elves uh, multiplied by generations and what their population was. I was absolutely eating it up. <laughs> Good. I'm glad to hear that. I was really concerned how people would, would receive that. But um in addition to those calculations, though, there he has interspersed a lot of really interesting text. Mm -hmm. um, I, I won't give things away, but there are definitely surprises. Yes. Like, Orame was not the only one at Quiviana. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> and uh, so you'll see some familiar names there. Um, now, keep in mind, of course, these are all late ideas. I don't know mm -hmm. that, that he would have settled on them and incorporated it into the Silmarillion had he had he, uh, you know, actually finished it. Right. Um, but it's to me, that doesn't really matter. Mm -hmm. it, what's interesting is that he had the thought. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> I don't know if you're going to raise the topic of canon. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Yeah, that was uh, one of my upcoming questions. So with with Tolkien's writings. Yeah, with, with Tolkien's writings, um, you know, obviously we have, uh, you know, um, Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit, which are, you know, pretty straightforward. But then uh, after that, you get really into just I, I couldn't imagine the task that, you know, Christopher and folks like yourself have taken on to go through all these notes and try to determine, you know, what uh what J.R.R. Tolkien would have settled on. So how do, as a fan, how do we look at, at these writings, you know, and we can uh, um, refer to nature of middle earth here. What, how do we look at these and determine what should be considered canon? I have no idea. <laughs> uh, to me, canon is anything that Tolkien actually wrote. Okay. Published or not. Yeah. Now, I know other people have different definitions of canon. I think ultimately everybody has their own personal definition of canon. Yeah. If the things they like, they ignore the things they don't like. <laughs> that's just fine as, as a fan. Yeah. You know, I don't think that that's fine if you're doing Tolkien scholarship. Mm. But if you if it's just in terms of appreciating Tolkien's works and the world that he built, ultimately you get to decide what mm. is canon for you and what is not. And you can try to persuade yeah. others of your point of view too. Of course, nothing wrong with that. Yeah, but I don't deal with that issue. That's uh, that's a great answer. <laughs> so, getting back to our story. Yes. <laughs> so, the bulk of the material in the time and aging file is 
like as I described, and it, it basically forms the first section of, or excuse me, the first part of three mm -hmm. of the nature of Middle Earth. And I just want to reiterate one more time. If you, you don't have to, if you don't care about the numbers and such, just ignore them, but be sure to read the text that accompanies mm, it. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> however, there were some, there were other late essays mixed amongst this material that were not concerned with time and aging and generations and things like that. Mm -hmm. um, so, uh, and, and the, those elements are largely, um, I think, if not entirely, in part two of the nature of Middle Earth. And they get very philosophical yes. and metaphysical. Um, so, for example, Tolkien writes an essay about death. And he asks whether um, if in Arda Unmarred, had it ever existed, would things have died? Mm. Um, and not to give anything away, but he basically realizes that, well, yes, some things had to die so that other things could live. Mm. Um, so let's see what else. Um, he, there's an, a lengthy essay called The Primal Impulse in which Tolkien basically presents a theistic form of evolution of, mm. the, of the origin of species, um, which is very interesting. Yeah. <laughs> um, and by the way, I don't know how many people are very interested in metaphysics, but it also amply demonstrates that Tolkien was very familiar with both Aristotle and Thomas Aquinas. Yes. And I yeah. point this out in the book. Um, for those who are scared by these things or don't really care about them, just ignore it. But if you want, <laughs> if you want to know more about what Tolkien's talking about, I do provide a, an appendix on metaphysical and theological themes. Mm -hmm. So if you see something and I point you to that uh, appendix, if it interests you at all, check it out. You might find it's something you'd like to explore more or it may just be something that doesn't interest you. Mm -hmm. Um I do really appreciate, you know, uh, and it's the same way, the same way I read uh, history of Middle Earth is I, I kind of go to the table of contents and then I hop around like sure. crazy. I just, as soon as I picked up this book, I, I immediately started paging through the table of contents and I saw like, oh, there's, there's a section on Nargothrond. I want to read that right now. <laughs> immediately went to it. <laughs> well, every, every new Tolkien book that comes out, the first thing I do is go to the index and look for my name. <laughs> I, I freely admit it <laughs> um yes uh i actually uh in terms of a reading strategy hmm. I, I would recommend that people uh, when they first get the book read my forward and then read yes. the introductions to the, the three parts that'll give you a really good idea of what the book contains and how it's mm -hmm. shaped and then you can decide what you want to dive deeper into yeah um you there there's there's no reason not to skip around the book. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. Yeah. And there's, there's definitely some really, um, you know, I know even in the, the promotional blurb, you know, it, there, there's some, some minor things like who can grow beards and who can't, which I thought was really interesting. That was one of the first, also one of the first things I looked at out of curiosity. Um, I take great delight in showing that, uh, <laughs> Peter Jackson, um, that uh, Radagast actually had a light, short, curly beard. Brown. Mm. He probably didn't have bird poop in his hair either. I'm pretty getting... certain of that. <laughs> that's that's my thing. I've always harped on, but yeah. Um, so yeah, so we've got we've got uh, you know talking about who oh. 
Well, should I go back to my uh, story of how? Oh yes, yeah, sorry, yes, sorry. Okay. Yes, I'm so, ju- I'm um, jumping ahead. <laughs> yeah. All right. So basically, Christopher, when he sent me this material, he said, uh, "What What do you think of this? What do you think? How do you think it should be? Well, I think the term you used was disposed of, but it doesn't mean thrown away. It means how should it be? Uh, what should be done with it? Hmm. So I looked at it, read through it, thought about it a lot. Um, started thinking about the other things that I had mentioned that I thought deserved wider a wider audience. And uh, somewhere along the line, it occurred to me that, hey, um, this could all be put together in a, in a single coherent book, despite the disparity of the topic, but under the uh, umbrella of nature. Mm-hmm. And that uh, that's how I settled on the title, The Nature of Middle Earth. And... Um, what that allowed me to do is to play on an ambiguity in English on what nature means. One primary sense, of course, is the natural world, flora and fauna, geology, geography, etc. And that is in this book. Mm-hmm. But the other primary sense is something's um, essential characteristics, its inherent qualities, like human nature. So, mm-hmm. um, and then I, I realized that if you if you sort of that, that really nicely bookends w- w- the scope of this book. Yeah. And I like to say that if you are, if you find your interest anywhere along that spectrum, you will find something of interest in this book. Um, so. Absolutely. Yeah. I've, I've had the book now for uh, just over 24 hours and I could say I've, I've been sneaking moments every, every chance I get. Cause I, I, Almost every time, you know, I've picked out a section to go to. Well, every time I've picked out a section to go to, I find something that I'm like, whoa, I didn't know that. And it's so exciting because it's not every every day we have a new Tolkien book and new Tolkien material to talk about. That's right. Um, so was there anything in the process of writing or in the process of going through Tolkien's notes um, that's in the book that... Uh, um, surprised you, or do you have a favorite um, discovery? Um, uh, there, are, there are no, numerous things that mm-hmm. you know I just find either surprising or delightful or charming. And um, not to give too much away, but I'll, I'll leave the the uh, viewer with two words: dancing bears. And uh, Matt, if you don't know what I'm talking about yet, I haven't know, got there yet. <laughs> um. <laughs> What section should I go to? Let's... I think it's an index. It's index. I think it's in the lands and beasts of Numenor. The land and beasts of Numenor. Oh, okay. Um, but then, you know, so I was surprised at Tolkien's mathematical capabilities. Um, yes. You know, it's one thing to add numbers together, right? Mm-hmm. But it's quite another to work out this complex scheme, generational scheme. Um, and there's even, as I, I point out, uh, somewhere in the first part, um, at one point, Tolkien decided to calculate some ratio involving time, uh, units of time. Mm-hmm. And he calculated this out. Now, keep in mind, this is before the age of the electronic calculator. Yes. Um, uh, such a thing, it, to the extent it existed, was both huge and terribly expensive. Yes. Um, he and that on- was eye-opening for me. Yeah. When I read that part, yeah. I, I had never even thought about that aspect of it but right it's very impressive so he worked this out this ratio out to about 360 decimal places and noticed where the the, the pattern started repeating 
um, which takes some remarkable mathematical sophistication. I couldn't do it by hand. Oh, gosh, I, would, no. I wouldn't do it by hand. <laughs> so there's really two questions here. How did he do it? And why? Why? Because <laughs> he obviously was never going to publish that, you know, yeah. for his own amusement. Um, yeah. Wow. I think we He's get that another, thorough. <laughs> we get another glimpse as to why he never completed the Silmarillion. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah. He's busy doing complex math problems that would never see the light of day. <laughs> yes. Oh man. Yeah. And, uh, I know, you know, uh, obviously we're, we're kind of tampering how much, uh, we give away. We obviously want people to check out the book because there's a ton of information in here. I can attest after just a day with the book. Um, but one thing that really blew my mind was, uh, that the concept of the, uh, Valian year, um, is quite a bit different than what, up until now we've uh we've thought that it equaled in terms of like years of the sun so there's some some very big implications in some of the changes uh yes. in this in this and, book yes indeed and uh, and that that is why tolkien uh, spent so much time working out those implications um, mm. as you see in particularly in part one um both for chronology and for the time the, the lifetime span of elves mm -hmm. um, which was greatly increased i should say uh, to start to understand, um, at some point around 1957, Tolkien decided that the Valian year was not 10 years, or mm -hmm. I think it was like 9.5. Yeah. Um, as, as it had been previously, but that it was in fact 144 yeah. years, sun years. Um, and so you can see that that has, um, and how, despite that, he basically kept the same, um, year numbers right uh, for the tale of years so it, he essentially increased the time um before the elves arrived at the shores of valerian by mm -hmm. 14 14 four. times <laughs> yeah. wow um, and obviously that has a lot of implications yeah in terms, in terms of, of ages and, ages. and yeah yes. wow. exactly exactly and uh yeah there's uh, there's also you know speaking of uh of times, you know, we, we have things like, um, uh, the elves, you know, their lifespan and, you know, the time frame where they, uh, you know, where they have kids and when they would get married and stuff like that. So there's, there's just an incredible amount of detail. Um, one of my favorite as a parent was the little tidbit that elf children were very well behaved. It sounds like. Yes. <laughs> I don't know what their secret is, but there's there's this little tidbit that elf children are very well behaved. Um, it must be the the finger game that you mention. Um, I don't know if you want to go into into any detail on that. Um, uh, well, as you'll discover as you read along, it becomes quite plain, and, and as Tolkien makes it quite evident that, um, in effect, Tolkien imagined elves to be unfallen men, mm -hmm. unfallen human unfallen people of a human kind. Right. Okay. Whereas men fell corporately, um, according to the Bible and of course, and also according to, um, what Tolkien writes in various places in, uh, in the history of middle earth. And in one of the essays in, um, in this book, um, the elves did not fall corporately. Individual elves could fall. Yes. Although he says at one point that none of them ever did. 
because basically falling meant that you rejected Eru and took something ah. else as God. Melkor. Okay. Okay. Um, so that explains why elves have much greater control over their uh, thoughts, their feelings, their spirit, and their physical bodies. Mm. Um, and I expect that that explains why elf children are better behaved. <laughs> better behaved. <laughs> There's no demon in them. <laughs> Well, there we go. Now we've we've got the answer to that. So, uh, yeah, if you've got really well-behaved children, they might have some some elvish in them. <laughs> um, so uh, you've mentioned we've mentioned a couple times, uh, you know, the uh, kind of the the religious influence on um, Tolkien's work. You bring up a couple times, both in uh, the introduction to part two, and then again in the appendix, you reference uh, the pretty well known i'd say tolkien quote of that is uh that lord of the rings and by extension we assume the legendarium is a fundamentally religious and catholic work um and you you bring up the point that you know this has kind of puzzled a lot of critics over the years um but i thought you you laid it out really well um explaining you know how uh how it doesn't mean you know um because we don't see Christian aspects directly in the book that the, the key word here is fundamentally. Exactly. Which I think people tended to overlook as just, you know, a filler word and intensifier. Mm. I, I, I think he mean, meant it literally. And um, as I tend to show, and as um, Jonathan McIntosh in a, uh, in a book a few years ago called the flame Imperishable, more, much more fully demonstrates um, if you look at the underlying metaphysics of Middle Earth, it is um, profoundly Catholic in the sense mm -hmm. that it is clearly Thomistic. That is based mm -hmm. on the philosophical and metaphysical thought of St. Thomas Aquinas. And if you know what to look for, you will see it. Yeah. Um, Which you, you do lay out some really interesting ones. Um, you know, I won't give anything away, but uh, in terms of the ages of the world that was something i had never i didn't know that there was a connection to the catholic faith in that even and so yeah there's um it, it's definitely uh you know I, I i like how you laid that out and kind of explain how it's uh you know more the the essence of the work itself uh finds its foundation in his exactly. faith exactly yeah. i I think uh, particularly the work that Macintosh has done, um, I think it's as important to understanding Tolkien and uh, particularly his metaphysics mm -hmm. as Tom Shippey's The Road to Middle Earth is to understanding Tolkien and his philological basis mm -hmm. and intent. Um, now, one thing I want to say is Tolkien yeah. was by no means attempting to proselytize. Mm -hmm. And yeah. I am not either. Right. Yeah, that's not yeah. what I'm. That's not the point I'm making in this book. At oh, absolutely. All. Yeah. Um, and actually, that this might be a good point uh, to sort of emphasize my editorial approach a little bit. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, when thinking about how to structure this book, um, I wanted to make Tolkien's text stand front front and center mm -hmm. as much as possible. Um, and to the extent that I offer commentary. It's all relegated to endnotes, numbered endnotes. Mm -hmm. 
you if you don't care about that kind of thing you do not have to go and look at the notes yeah. <laughs> if you want to know more they're there for you otherwise um, except for the introduction for each piece where i try to just sort of i i do describe the physical manuscript um in large part because other people who have worked with tolkien's manuscripts will better understand the nature of the text and if in the future somebody wants to go and try to find some of these texts, that will help them find them. Mm. Okay. And I also give take care to give a date for each text um, to the nearest as near as I can tell. Yeah. So um, which you know you got to it, it helps to understand the, the the development of Tolkien's thought, the relation of texts to each other, and how things you know developed over time. Mm -hmm. But aside from that, I don't really offer a lot of commentary up front except in a, one or two cases. Yeah. Um, I also, um, in order to um, minimize the uh, having the reader having to turn to the back of the, of the text, I also, wherever possible, give Tolkien's own footnotes as footnotes. So okay. it's right there on the same page. Yeah. yeah. And um, the, the appendices, like uh, particularly the one on metaphysical and theological uh, themes, it's there if you want it. You do not have to read it. Um, so, yeah, that's great. Um, so how I'm, I'm sure there's, you know, a challenge and a balance there that you have to kind of strike because, you know, you can't you can't just throw in a bunch of Tolkien's notes without some kind of uh, explanation, you know, here and right. there to connect things. Um, yeah, so how, exactly. Yeah. So how do you how do you uh, as an editor and, you know, I'm sure this is something that that Christopher, you know, more than anyone experienced, you know, how do you, how do you balance, um, you know, putting in your, your own, you know, commentary and insight with, um, with the, the notes of Tolkien. So some places you have to provide some sort of a connecting bridge between mm -hmm. two parts of a text or two different versions of a text or, you know, things like that, which I do. I'm, I'm certainly didn't rule that out. But where I do, um, my commentary is in a smaller type and it's inset from the main text. Mm -hmm. So you can always tell at a glance whether it's Tolkien what you're reading. or yeah. if it's me. Yeah. Um, it, yeah, you cannot avoid it entirely. Mm -hmm. um, you shouldn't even try, really. Right. <laughs> you you got to make it flow for the reader. Yeah. So. Absolutely. Um, so naturally, one of, one of the questions that um, because I, I honestly didn't, until this was announced, I didn't expect that there would ever be more Tolkien books. Um, so I was absolutely thrilled when I, I heard this announcement. Um, so I think the natural question now that we, I've got this in my hand now, I wonder, are there, uh, are there any more writings that, um, could, uh, make up a future book or is this kind of the end of the line? So uh, referring specifically to Tolkien writing about Middle Earth, hmm. I, I have to say I'm not aware of any, any other, you know, amount of, of, like, of material like this. Hmm. Now, there are, of course, different versions of text that were published hmm. I mean, the ver where the versions themselves had not been fully published by Christopher in the history of Middle Earth. Um, but, you know, some at some point, people may want to go and look at those manuscripts and work out in, in a more detailed fashion, you know, 
exactly what all the changes and developments were. Gotcha. So in that sense, there are there is unpublished text, but not, I am not aware of any um, any other writings by Tolkien on Middle Earth that have not uh, had at least you know one version of it published. Hmm. Now I could be wrong, <laughs> but I've seen a lot of Tolkien's manuscripts. Yeah, I bet. <laughs> um, so now that being said, there there's other Tolkien writings, particularly his academic writing. Mm, that has yeah. not been fully published, including um, different versions of, of of academic works that were published by Tolkien during his lifetime. Mm. So there, there certainly is that type of material um, mm -hmm. uh, that that I expect will be published. In fact, I know of uh, at least two projects in the work at the moment. Mm. Are you um, at liberty to tell us any what yeah, any of those are? No. Okay. Not. <laughs> no. I mean, I haven't been told not to, but I just don't want to make anything uncomfortable. Yeah, right? no, that's, so. I, I totally understand. I had to ask at that point, because otherwise I'd get all kinds of comments. Why didn't you ask this? Okay. <laughs> so um, this is more of a, a a hypothetical, you know. Um, oh, and of course. Question. Or, oh, go ahead. There's yeah. all the linguistic material, too. There's lots ah, and yes. lots of that that still has not been published, some of which contains, you know, some interesting mm. gems. Uh, yeah. So. So there's okay. some of that left. So you're telling me there's a chance is what you're saying. Uh, <laughs> we might get a there, linguistic there be, book. Um, well, I mean, our our publication program has been carried out in uh, VT and Parma. Hmm. I, I don't know whether someday somebody might attempt to synthesize all that and turn it into a book. Into a book. Okay. But we won't. Be, I won't be doing that. And I don't <laughs> see any of our team doing that anytime hmm. soon because we're still working on publishing the, yeah. the material itself. Um, which is actually right. what I'm going to turn to next now that I'm done working on this book. So. Great. So when, when did you uh, actually finish the book? Um, you know, we said you started this process 25 years ago. So what, at what point did you uh, send off the final, final draft and, uh, you know, kind of wipe your hands of it? I think it was sometime in late May, if I remember correctly. Okay. Um, I, there was the delay that was my fault. I, <laughs> I you know, just, well, I mean, you can see it's a pretty complex work. Absolutely. And, yeah. uh, 2020 was not exactly a fun year for most. It was people. not. So, yeah. But the important thing is that it's done. <laughs> and, uh, and I just, I really hope that people will enjoy it, find something in it to, to really enjoy. So. Absolutely. Well, kudos to you for owning up too, because I mean, I just assumed it was a publishing no, no, no thing, but you just you just went out there and uh, took it like a champ just now. Oh, so yeah. I applaud you. <laughs> it, truth is truth. You know, these things happen. I don't do this professionally, you know. <laughs> so. Um, so this is this is kind of a hypothetical question, um, and one that you know I, I've seen you know, people just kind of throw out there, um, you know, just, um, in your opinion, or, you know, I don't know if you'd have any insight on it, but do you think there'll ever come a time where there'll be future narrative books in middle earth, whether that's, um, you know, someone, uh, the state authorizes someone to, to do a, a new story altogether, or, you know, maybe something like Baron and Luthien or the fall of Gondolin, turning that into a more, uh, a full book such a, you know, like we got children of Hurin, um, is more of a 
self-contained narrative in a longer format. Do you think anything like that might ever happen? Ever is a very long time. That's true. Yeah. But I'm sure once things go into the public domain, that sort of thing mm. will happen. However, in terms of uh, something like that authorized by the estate, at least as it's currently constituted, I strongly doubt it. Mm. Uh, this is just my guess. Yeah. I don't have any real inside information on this, but I, I you know, I'm quite certain that Christopher Tolkien would never have uh, right. uh, countenanced such a thing. Yeah. And there are, you know, um, his wife Bailey is a member of the estate and the solicitor for the estate, um, uh, Kathleen Blackburn um, has been on the estate and knew Christopher's thoughts very, very well, knows mm. them very, very yeah. well. So, uh, so that's just based on my knowledge of mm -hmm. those people. I don't see that happening. Yeah. Not anytime soon. Okay. But things change. That's true. That's true. <laughs> I never thought, I never thought that uh, the estate would license any more material you know, like they've done for the Amazon show. So that's true. So I, I didn't, uh, you know, have that in my pre, uh, interview questions I sent over, but I'm curious, you know, as obviously a huge Tolkien fan yourself, um, what do you think of the upcoming Amazon show that we know almost nothing about? <laughs> well, I know almost nothing about it either. So <laughs> my attitude is wait and see. That's I'm a good, I am hoping for the best. Absolutely. Um, <laughs> we'll see. Yeah. I I mean the it's intriguing to me, you know, the the fact that it's going to be in the second age um is really intriguing to me um because of how how little, you know, really there is written especially dialogue wise, you know, we don't have these big uh lengthy conversations and um you know, it's not like a, a lot of stuff in the Silmarillion where we have dialogue between Horan and Morgoth and all this, um, you know, there's, there's, uh, a lot of, uh, room for interpretation and creativity there, I guess. That's right. And, and in a sense that gives me a little bit of comfort because I don't feel that they will be, um, as at greater risk of mangling things, mm. at least story-wise and right. thematically yeah. as was I don't want to get I don't want to get in trouble, but <laughs> just to say I'm not a big fan of the Peter Jackson movie. Mm, okay, okay. So, <laughs> I'm sure you know as as someone who's been so uh, you know intimately involved with Tolkien's writings, um, you know it's it's you, you probably have a pretty critical eye. I would I would say you know when it comes to uh, adaptations. Uh, well, certainly. Um, I, I know I'm not, I'm, I know I'm not here to talk about the movies, but um, to me, the crucial thing was, uh, was it true to Tolkien's uh, themes mm -hmm. and the feel of the story and the book? Mm -hmm. And I feel it was not. Those mm -hmm. movies were not. Um, now, a lot of people will say, oh, well, you know, a movie is different from a book. They can't mm -hmm. put everything in. Yeah, of course. <laughs> That's obvious. Yeah. My problem was what they put in that didn't belong there. Not what mm. they left out. I'll just leave it there. Okay. I, I, I'm very curious to hear. Maybe off the record we can talk. <laughs> about. Okay. I, I'm curious. I'm curious of some examples and stuff. But uh, 
yeah, we can we can leave it at that. That's totally fine. <laughs> okay. Well, um, I, I can give you one example. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Give me I'll an example. I would love an example. Okay. So there's one scene where I think is it Pippin and Gandalf where they're talking about death. Yes. And yeah. Gandalf, you know, gives the uh, says in speech essentially the scene mm -hmm. that uh, in the book is where Frodo reaches uh, right. the Undying Lands. Yes. I thought that was a fundamental betrayal mm. of one of the fundamental themes of Tolkien. And this is why. Yeah. Men do not know their fate mm. in Middle Earth. Yeah. Gandalf is basically telling Pippin, when you die, you're going to go to heaven and mm -hmm. you're gonna, everything's going to be great. Yeah. Gandalf doesn't know that. Right. And, you know, men certainly don't know that. Mm -hmm. Um it, I just thought that that cheapened the whole thing. Mm. It also gives a false impression that Frodo went to heaven. Yeah. He didn't. He went to Tolaresia. Right. And then he lived there for a time until he was healed, as, as healed as he was going to get. And then he too died. Or die, yeah. Um, and then went who knows where. Right. Because nobody knows. Yeah. Not back then. Like you say, it's, it's well, it's more properly pre-Christian. Mm -hmm. um, I wouldn't say it's unchristian but it's right christian so yeah there is no promise yeah. yeah that is interesting you know i've i've thought of that scene before you know when i when i watch it and uh um you know thinking that gandalf saying like well this is this is what i'm gonna see when i sail west <laughs> like but <laughs> it'd be kind of, it'd be almost uh morbidly funny to be like ah pippin i i just don't know what's gonna happen to you man <laughs> Well, in which case, I would just say, why put it in there? Right. Yeah, no, I know. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so one thing, uh, you know, in the in the intro to part three um, that I picked up, um, you know, you, you the specific example you gave was um, Tolkien properly calculating the travel times of the fellowship meeting in Rivendell, um, you know, with some of them traveling on horse you know boromir travels on horse for part of the way and then he's on foot and uh you know gimli's coming from erebor um and as someone who who integrates maps a lot into my videos i really appreciate uh this example but it goes to show how concerned with uh how concerned tolkien was with making things as real and in line with our own world as possible and believable right. Um, yeah, I mean, that was obviously a great concern of his, particularly after finishing Lord of the Rings. Well, actually, even during working on Lord of the Rings. Um, uh, and, you know, that, that's when he decided that the, the sun and the moon must have been coeval with the Earth mm -hmm. um, and were just astronomical objects. Uh, because, of course, the elves would, would have to know this. Yeah, I'm not quite sure why he thought that they would have to do that, <laughs> um, but uh, and that was that it would have been disastrous had he car actually carried that out. And so I'm, I, I'm a I'm glad he never did, and b I think he knew that he could not do that mm. because it, it just renders one of the most beautiful distinctives of his myth, the two trees, yeah, and thus the Silmarils, yeah, uh, into just. I don't know, cheap, pointless right. thoughts. Yeah. Um, 
No, it would have been absolutely disastrous. Yeah. But that yeah. was his mode of thinking when he returned to the matter of the elder days. He was concerned to be more scientific, more rigorous, mm. and more uh, methodical, coherent, yeah, and define all of these details. Yeah. Um, so that's a, yeah, that's that's great insight. So was was there any other? Um, you know, that's a great example of this. My next question was going to be, were there any? Um, you know pieces of text where, you know, having such a deep knowledge of Tolkien already, you know, from childhood, even um, where you read Tolkien's notes and you said, you just kind of thought to yourself, are you sure about this? Oh, J.R.R. Yeah. Are you sure oh, yeah. you know what you're doing? here? <laughs> well, I, I give you a good example of that. Um, there's a text in there that is called, I got to remember correctly. It's uh the Numenorean catastrophe and the end of physical Amon. Mm, yeah. And uh, in this text, he basically decides that Amon could not have been, could not have been removed physically from the earth without becoming a satellite of earth. Um, <sighs> and so he decided that it had to be removed only in a spiritual sense, hmm. but that physically the land remained. And there's a quote in there, something about the, the land of Valinor not being hallowed by, it's not the land that is hallowed, it is the people that hallow the land, or, or words to that effect, hmm. the inhabitants. Um, and he makes, actually states that uh, Amon becomes the Americas. Um, what's <laughs> um, now, I mean, it's a cool idea. A lot of people have thought, oh, I wonder if that's the case, you know? Yeah. Uh, well, especially for us as Americans. I mean, we're yes, kind of right. like, we're okay, I could, I could get that. Yeah. <laughs> the problem with that is, though, that in The Lord of the Rings, we see Frodo apparently very physically embodied, mm -hmm. sailing to Tolaresia, which is a real physical place. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, obviously it can't be true that it's just a spiritual realm. Yeah. So. Um, so Frodo did not just like pull up to, to port in Florida or anything like that, I guess. <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> oh. so, yeah, so, yeah, I mean, there there are areas where, but keep in mind, too, uh, in a lot of these texts, Tolkien is thinking on paper with his pen. Yes. He does yeah. that a lot. So he's just trying out ideas. He's not really necessarily committing to anything. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, sometimes he does realize when he's, uh, you know, written himself into a corner, as it were, or, you know, decided something that can't really be true. Mm -hmm. um, there's no evidence that he reached that point with this particular matter. Right. But he would have eventually. <laughs> uh, so... So I'm I'm curious, you know, as uh, as an uh, editor, and you know, getting this essentially a, a box of photocopies from Christopher, um, and I I would imagine, you know, Christopher had the same situation where you know he's dealing with even more notes. What is it logistically, physically like with all of these scattered notes and pieces of paper? Like, how do you even begin to organize something like that? Me personally, or yeah, um, yeah, the, the Tolkien papers, or or yeah, or the uh, you know, what Christopher did, or so Tolkien and Christopher began organizing Tolkien's papers before he died. Mm. Um, as I understand it, they were sorted out 
generally speaking, not not always completely um, thoroughly, and distributed amongst um, a large number of file boxes or what Christopher refers to as box files. Um, and so subsequent to his father's death, of course, he would then have continued. In fact, he continued, I think, until near the end of his life because he still had papers in his possession. As far as I know, I don't know that everything's gone to the Bodleian yet, mm. um, but I, I believe that's the intent. Um, yeah. That everything that was in Christopher's possession will go to the Bodleian at some point. And so he he went through and numbered things and tried to provide some uh, notes and descriptions and things. Um, so when he sends me stuff, if he hasn't already numbered it, he'll supply a number for each page, each side. Mm -hmm. And uh, and I just pretty much retain the organization that he supplied the papers to me in. So I have my own set of box files um, for the stuff that I've received. Mm -hmm. And I have not reordered things. Now, that being said, uh, that just because I haven't physically reordered anything doesn't yeah. mean that I can't um, you know, index them some way and then come up with different orderings if I need to. Right. Um, uh, digitally. Okay. So that's why I was curious if, uh, if at some point, you know, um, like you mentioned, you mentioned earlier, uh, kind of on the front end of your fandom where, where you, we were technology wise <laughs> with, uh, um, your computer and printer setup and everything. Um, so I was curious if, if, uh, you kind of moved to a digital um, organization system at all with uh, with these writings. So particularly for the materials that went into this book, I did scan everything so that I would have ready access to it um, on my computer. Um, there's advantages to doing that too, because you can zoom in, you can play around with the contrast, help you decide what a word says. Um, I haven't mentioned yet, but a major part of the, t the challenge of editing paper, Tolkien's papers, is often his handwriting, ah. handwriting. <laughs> so it's easy to look at the printed page and think, oh, this is not so hard <laughs> to, uh, to put together. Well, yeah. I had to read all of that in Tolkien's handwriting and then type it, you know, myself. Yeah. Um, so a huge amount of work that went into this book is basically invisible. And if an editor <laughs> does their job right, it should be invisible. Yeah. So is that uh, reading his handwriting? Is that something that Christopher also struggled with? Oh, sure. Yeah. Tolkien himself struggled with it. <laughs> um, I've got several examples where he's written something and then at a later date has gone back and he's trying to, uh, to read his uh, own writing. And he's, and he's in interpolated little notes where he writes what the word, what he thinks the word says or what it might say. And sometimes even he is defeated. Um, <laughs> So, yes, but that being said, Christopher was remarkable at reading his father's handwriting. Mm. Um, and not to brag, but I've gotten pretty good at it myself. <laughs> I was going to say, I bet, I bet you have. It for quite a long time. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Don't, don't undersell yourself here. <laughs> um, so I wanted to ask, so I, I usually ask uh, everyone some general, um, you know, questions about you as a fan so as a fan uh who is your favorite middle earth character oh that's a good question 
I don't know if I can pick just one favorite. <laughs> um, Gondal's way up there. Yeah. Um, I have a real soft spot for Sam. Hmm. Um, I think in many ways, and Tolkien agreed, he, he is arguably the hero, the real hero of the story. Right. Um, uh, oh, um, Finrod. Yes. Um, yeah. Gosh, it's so hard to narrow. I know, right? Feanor <laughs> is a fascinating character to me. Mm -hmm. I don't know if I would say he's my favorite because yes. he's got some deep, deep flaws. Got some flaws. issues. <laughs> got some real issues. Whole big bound set of issues. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I, I just, I, I, I can't really narrow it down that much. Yeah, I um, mean that's a pretty good. That's a pretty good list. I feel like. I would say overall, uh, in terms of, uh, I, I'm extremely fond of elves generally and the whole okay. con uh, concept of elves. That's why I love the Silmarillion so much. Mm. Um, so my next question was going to be, what what's your favorite Middle Earth book, aside from the one that you edited? Because I would imagine that's pretty far up there. So <laughs> what which is your, your favorite Middle Earth book? Okay, so I like to answer that question this way. The Lord of the Rings is unquestionably Tolkien's magnum opus. Mm -hmm. However, in terms of the books that move me the most and that have stuck with me the most, it's the Silmarillion. And, and that, if that gives you some insight into the way I think about uh, Middle Earth and my sort of outlook on life in general, well, you're <laughs> right. So uh, I like to tell people that the first time I finished reading the Silmarillion, I felt that I had lived 10,000 years. And I didn't, I don't mean like I was, you know, tired or anything. Right. I mean, in terms of the scope mm -hmm. of what was covered. Yeah. Uh, it just has an amazing impact. Um, mm. So, yeah, that's my Desert Island book. Great. Do you, do you have a favorite particular story within the Silmarillion? Hmm. Well, I've always been very fond of Arendu. Yeah. Um, hmm. Oh, um, Fall of Gondolin, I really like. Oh, yeah. A lot. Um, but again, it's it's kind of hard. It's like trying yeah. amongst your children. Right. Uh, yeah. So. <laughs> the, well, it's, it, so, so. <laughs> it's the one that acts most like one of those uh, well-behaved elven children. That's right. The answer. <laughs> Um, so if you could live somewhere in Middle Earth, where would it be? Ooh, that's a good question. Well, since I would probably like to stay alive, <laughs> um, I think it's usually uh, preferable. I think Rivendell would be a pretty fantastic place to live. Yeah. Either that or the library of Minas Tirith. <laughs> mm, just the library. <laughs> just the library, yeah. <laughs> Very cool. Okay, so then uh, the maybe you were starting to think of the answer to this one. So if you could just visit somewhere in Middle Earth, where would it be? Mm -hmm. Visit, but not actually live there. Right. Uh, Gondolin hmm. would be fantastic. Yeah. Um, Especially if you get to choose, you know, the time. Yes, exactly. Pre-fall. <laughs> right, right. Uh, Toleresia. Yeah. Um, of course, that's forbidden. Um, and uh, well, certainly Menace Tirith would be great, and, mm -hmm. and and Rivendell. Oh, and Lorien, of course. 
Yeah. But again, you got to pick the time. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, so what, uh, or I guess you, you already said your favorite, uh, favorite race in middle earth is elves, correct? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So what is it about the elves that, um, that make them your favorite? Um, I, I think it's the fact that they combine both, um, beauty and, um, uh, sort of remarkable history with, with, um, sadness all mm. running through it. Um, even though they're, you know, immortal beings who generally don't die, uh, you would think that they would be just, you know, happy as could be. Mm -hmm. It's not like that at all. Yeah. There's that fundamental underlying sadness, um, that, uh, just really, I don't know, appeals to me. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Well, that's a great answer. Um, so you mentioned earlier, I, I want to circle back to, you know, you mentioned earlier, uh, how the, in the early days of your fandom, you know, you knew maybe one or two people that was in, that were interested in Tolkien the way you were. Um, so what's it like, you know, looking back on that now where we have the internet, we have, you know, social media and, uh, you know, we obviously we're talking here on YouTube. We have all these ways of connecting with other Tolkien fans. Um, I, I feel, you know, when you were talking earlier, I'm like, man, I'm like, we're so lucky to have all this access to each other, to other fans. Right. Um, I mean, that, that's certainly, um, it's a great bonus the way that we can all communicate so easily. It's also a bit of a double-edged sword though, because, uh, I like to say the great thing about the internet is that anyone can say anything. And the terrible <laughs> thing about the internet is that anyone can say anything. Yes. <laughs> um, so it gives and it takes away. Mm. That's, that's good. Yeah. <laughs> um, now I noticed, uh, I, it, it seemed to me, and obviously part of this is, um, you know, the groups that I hang out in and everything, but um, it seemed to me the sense I was getting online during, you know, you mentioned 2020 was a rough year. It seemed like there was a lot of people taking, you know, comfort and escaping into Middle Earth um, during, you know, a very st stressful time um, in a lot of people's lives. Um, what do you think it is about Tolkien's work um, that resonates so deeply with people? And, you know, gosh, this these works were, um, you know, published well over, um, I gosh, since The Hobbit. What are we what are we up to? At least is it getting close to 70 years on The Hobbit. Um, oh, what, that was it? 37 came out. So oh, 37. Yeah. yeah. So, gosh. I'm bad at math. See, over, I can't do the math. Over we we're just talking about Tolkien being able to do all this complex math, and I can't even calculate years oh, here. I'm, <laughs> hey, I'm a computer scientist with NASA, and I can't do simple <laughs> math a lot of times. So, so yeah, so so as someone who's who's you know uh, studied Tolkien and um, you know worked very closely with his works for so long, what do you feel it is about um, Middle Earth that resonates so deeply? with people in such a unique way that you don't see across a lot of, uh, fandoms and a lot of, uh, a lot of works of fiction. Right. Um, I mean, at, at one level, it, maybe the simplest level is it's just, it's, it's a, in a form of escape. I mean, mm -hmm. you, for the time you're reading 
the books. You're not thinking about all the terrible things going on in the world around us. Um, so there's that. Yeah. <laughs> um, but it's obviously much more than just that. Um, I, I think Tolkien speaks to the part of all of us that wants to believe, and some of us do believe, that there is ultimately a purpose um, behind everything. Um, and I, I think that, you know, Tolkien expresses that and um, elicits that response, usually in a very subtle way. And not every, not every reader is even going to realize that that's what's going on. Yeah. Um, but it definitely is. Um, we all like to think that life has a meaning. Um, and uh, I, I think Tolkien has an almost, if not completely unrivaled gift mm -hmm. at conveying that, uh, that to people in a way that is not um, explicit and hitting your hitting you over the head with it. Yeah. Um, the, the best answer I think would be to go, go read uh, Tolkien's essay on fairy stories and keep mm -hmm. the Lord of the Rings in mind while you're reading it. And then I think you'll see so, some of these elements that I'm talking about where he talks about recovery. Um, and of course, then you catastrophe yeah. that, uh, that sudden turn of joy, um, which is uh, what he described uh, the, the destruction of the ring. Right. And subsequent rescue of Frodo and Sam as being. Um, yeah. That's great. And that's very powerful. I mean, I, yeah. I don't, it's hard to, I, I would think most human beings can't help but feel that sense of what he calls you catastrophe yeah. at that point. Uh, it's interesting. Um, Tolkien himself wept as he wrote that scene. The, the, uh, the accomplishment or well Frodo didn't really accomplish the task right. yeah it got accomplished the, the task got accomplished yeah yes and um, if you look at the manuscript the, the first version of the manuscript of that scene you can see where his where a tear has uh, blurred the blurred the ink wow yeah oh my gosh that's incredible I just got goosebumps listening to that yeah <laughs> wow um, so, you know, as, as you sit here today on the release day of your book, you know, think it back to, um, the young boy who was gifted the box set of the Hobbit and Lord of the Rings. So what does it, what does it feel like right now? As I, as I hold up this book to see a book with J.R.R. Tolkien's name, as well as your own. Uh, well, obviously, um, I'm, uh, I'm very honored to have been asked to do this. It was a humbling experience as well, because I knew I had a great responsibility in my hands. Um, I did not know, and I at this time still don't, still don't really know what people are going to make of it. Yeah. <laughs> um, I hope something good, at least in the main. Um, so it's both exciting and a little bit scary at the moment. <laughs> um, uh, I, I really, you may have noticed that I dedicated this book to Christopher Tolkien. Yes. For me, fundamentally, what this is, is my gift to his memory and my way to give back 
for all the things that he's given us and that he gave to me. And I will point out that if you, you will note that the, uh, the last piece in the book, the main part of the book, is an essay called The River and Be- Rivers and Beacon Hills of Gondor. Yes. And that was chosen deliberately to be last because it contains some considerable amount of Christopher Tolkien's own editorial commentary that he had pr- prepared for publication in the Peoples of Middle Earth, but it was cut due to length. Uh-huh. But when he sent it to me, he also sent me that editor- his editorial commentary and gave me permission to include it uh, in my own edition. And so I wanted Christopher to have, in essence, the last editorial word mm-hmm. in the book. Man, that's beautiful, so. man. Yeah, it, it, we definitely, uh, I, I think, you know, uh, I'm sure you more than more than any of us, you know, felt that loss when, Christopher, <clears throat> excuse me, passed away last year. Um, and yeah, I think, I think that's a beautiful sentiment to give him, give him the last words in your book. It was the day we all knew must come, but hope never would. Yeah, absolutely. I'm, I, we're definitely all indebted to him. You know, it's, it's amazing to think the, uh, the amount of his father's work that without Christopher would, we would never know anything about. I mean, Think of all the stories <laughs> contained, you know, since since the Silmarillion and uh, Unfinished Tales and all of history of Miller. It's it's incredible. It's an amazing and unprecedented accomplishment what yeah. Christopher did. Yeah. So, um, oh, sorry, go ahead. I just say I can't think of anything comparable. So you okay. mentioned um, your hope for the book. Uh, we're sitting here not quite a week out from the book's release. Um, you're sitting here with bated breath, waiting to see what um, people will think of it. What is your hope um, for what people get out of Nature of Middle Earth? Well, I guess the number one hope I have is that uh, most everybody will find something that they um, enjoy or um, surprised by or uh, just um, glad to see. Um I, I think at another level, I'm, I, th- I hope that it will show people um, still more um, how Tolkien was thinking about his own creation hmm. after finishing The Lord of the Rings, where he became very analytical and philosophical about it. I think it's an interesting glimpse into uh, his later life. And it just... Um, I, th- I think it should, in that regard, help deepen people's understanding of, of Tolkien as a person and as a, a, a writer. And, um, yeah. Well, I can attest uh, for myself, you know, having had, like I said, about 24 hours with the book so far, I've already had at least a dozen of those moments that you speak of where I look at it and say, oh, that's really cool or that's really surprising. Um, so again, folks, the book, the nature of middle earth, go to get it online or go to your bookstore, um, check it out, buy a copy, dive in, and you'll definitely learn some, uh, some new tidbits about middle earth as well as, uh, get a, like, like Carl said, an even, uh, greater appreciation for the genius of Tolkien and uh, his thought process in crafting this world. 
Uh, Carl, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us today about the book. Oh, thank you for having me. It's been a real pleasure. All right. Well, folks, again, it's not every day that we get to say there is a new Tolkien book. So take advantage of this moment, soak it in, dive into the book. And thank you so much for watching. And we'll see you next time on Nerd of the Rings. Thanks so much for listening to this audio podcast of Nerd of the Rings. To get the latest Middle Earth related videos, including Tolkien Explained, Complete Travels, and Theories, visit youtube.com slash nerd of the rings. This audio podcast is made possible by the support of my wonderful Patreon supporters. To learn how you can score some exclusive perks while supporting the channel, visit patreon.com slash nerd of the rings. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you next time on Nerd of the Rings.